that they would themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest some on boards, and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. So far what we've seen here that as much as Christ could calm the tempest, he could bring storms to the sea. Here we see the distress of Paul, which basically most of his ministry, that's what we have seen, and the peril that follows travelers, and the peril that followed his life when he came out of being a Pharisee and the Lord saved him and converted him. His life has been very perilous, but look at the joy that he has serving the Lord. On board we saw merchants, we've seen soldiers, there's prisoners, there's a doctor, there's a Greek Christian friend of Paul, and then there's Paul the Apostle. And so we see how Christ alone in the Spirit is the one present on this ship, and the Lord said very specifically, and now this is all going to play out, we're going to see how every prophecy ever made in Scripture is 100% perfectly fulfilled by our Lord, 276 souls were facing death, and the Lord said, no matter what, you are going to a specific island, you will not die. And that's it. That's, that's incredible. In verse 39, it says it was day. They knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. At this time, the ship is being tossed to and fro. They've frapped it, and they've put the cables around it, and then they've, they've dropped the anchors. Pastor. Yeah, you already covered the, the section a little bit before that. You just referred to it now. Right. Uh, it, I think this ship uh, wreck of Paul is the greatest example in the Bible of how a warning saves somebody. Amen. Mm. Now, was it possible for the slavers to leave the ship? Not really, because it was already prophesied that everybody would be saved. But God was using that warning to keep the sailors on the ship so that everybody would be saved. That's God right. used the means to keep them saved. And it's just like in the Bible. In the Bible, you know, there's all the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism and whether you got election or not. And the thing is, there are warnings, especially in Hebrews, that talk about if you fall away, you won't be able to be renewed. That's right. And then the Arminians take God and say, oh, well, see, you can fall away. But no, you can't fall away. It's just a, it's a warning right. that keeps you from falling away. That's a great point. Amen. That's right. And that was one of many warnings, wasn't it? It wasn't just one. It wasn't one-dimensional. Paul all along was warning them. He said, it's winter coming. 
Let's not go into the winter. This is crazy. Lisey, I'm sorry. Right. But with the elect, the elect will not fall away. I mean, maybe there's a there's a, a time in there where they backslide or whatever, but they are all forever in the Lord's hands. Right. So his sovereignty keeps us Amen. in his hands. That's exactly right there. Has the whole world in his hands. And along with those warnings, the pastor brought up an extremely important point with all did you have your hand up, Lisa? I'm no. I'm sorry. With all the warnings that are there, winter coming. With all of this, 276 people, when it comes to God, who always wins out? Out of 276 people, we don't have a head count. We don't know exactly who was saved. But from our reading and what we've studied, we could say that it, is a, it was a small minority. Maybe Aristarchus. Definitely Dr. Luke. He's on board with them. He's the one making accounts of this. Paul himself. You have three. I personally believe that eventually Julius, the Roman centurion, gets saved. I personally believe that. From what I'm seeing and the way that the, the motif and the tenor of this goes, that he was part of the ministry of Publius. We'll see that later on. But it's a, it's a warning given. Whose warnings won out? Does the warnings of the soldiers win out? We want to kill the passengers. Did the warnings of the initial uh, imperial Roman navy win out? No, we're going to get this merchandise to Rome for, for Caesar no matter what. Did that win out? Whose warning won out? The gods, every time. Our Lord made it very clear, you are going to have a shipwreck but not one hair on your head is going to be touched. And it says that in this word, in, in the Lord's word. These are good points. Paul has friends there. We see that, that there was a men that were assigned for the accompaniment of the food we looked at. They were envoys of food, special couriers called frumentary, imperial agents. They, were, they, 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 they had the job of spying, transporting political prisoners to various garrisons and provinces. We see Julius commands an accompaniment of 100 men, 276 vessels on the second ship, and the word frumentary is from the Latin word for grain, frumentum, and basically they were carrying food and grain, and it was a very important, important ship. Now, going back to Lisa, did you, did you, I think you had your hand up again. Go ahead, I'm sorry. All right, warning signs. Yep. Right. Yep. Right. 
It's, it's incredible. It's incredible all the artifacts that, that prove and show the authenticity of Scripture. Look at the wagon wheels that they found in the middle of the Red Sea. They found them. They found actual. They have found actual uh, of, of bones and of reptiles on top of mountains, proving the flood. And there we saw. We had all these little five-minute clips we watched. There was just a little five-minute to show the area and all. We saw. We saw what the ship looked like, most likely. It's very, very. Uh, um, I think it's, it's very easy to believe that that's what the ship looked like and what the anchors looked like. I mean, it's it, it's it's incredible. <clears throat> And thank, thank you for that comment. We see here, basically, the normal route was from Sidon to Myra. And just real quick, just so you get this in your mind, and you, you see how unlikely this is. We're in the middle of a shipwreck. We were talking for weeks, the last couple of weeks, how the boat is being tossed to and fro. We would think that it would be not unlikely at all that the ship would be pulled out to sea, and if it were to break apart, and if it would be swallowed up in like these whirlpools or whatever they have in the middle of a hurricane, they would all die. Look on your map where Melita is. That's the main thing. And look at some of the cities along the way. Follow your arrows. Not the third missionary journey, but Paul's trek to, the, to Rome. Look where it is. What are the chances of a ship hitting that little island in the middle of the Adriatic Sea? What are the chances of it hitting those shores? Look at all the other shores along. There's Phoenix. There's, there's, there's Corinth a little bit northern, but that's a little far north. There's Crete. The leeward side of Crete between Athens, there's Phoenix. That's where Paul wanted to go was Fair Haven, and they were like, no. And so look at all those places that they could have harbored the ship, but the, the soldiers and the centurions said, no, we're not going to do that. We need to get this grain, we need to get this merchandise all the way over to Rome, to, to, to Patioli and all these other areas. And so all of a sudden they don't listen. The boat... The boat gets carried to the shore of this teeny tiny little island in the middle of Africa and on the coast over here between Africa and over between Europe and, and Italy. It's out in the middle of nowhere. What are the chances of that ship being sucked into that little island? I mean, everything here is miraculous. And the way that the Lord does it, He does it in a fashion to show His strength and His power. And if you see that... You, you see, basically, we're going to be looking on the map later on next week when we see him, they leave there and they wind up heading towards Rome. What, a, what an incredible journey that is following this shipwreck. Even though that the sentiment of the centurion was to make a proposal to have, actually it was the soldiers to make a proposal to have all of the, all of the, the, uh, the uh, um, um, prisoners killed, it's also incredible that Julius stands up and he defends them. And he says, no, when the ship wrecks, save yourself. You know, I think that's an important lesson on how, what responsibility we have, even as people that are out in the unsaved world, have a responsibility to protect other people. They have a responsibility to have mercy on other people. And look what happens as we put all of this together and we see them being pulled into Malta or Melita, and then we're going to see another great miracle about how they're, they're, they, are, they are intercepted and they're, they're welcomed, welcomed in to the natives of the island. 
But you know, I found it fascinating. I was reading different commentaries, and it's fascinating to read some of Matthew Henry's commentaries because he talks about some of the present-day problems that were a real issue around them. And he was talking about how important it was that Julius the centurion wanted to save the lives of these people and he said in his day, what they would do at the ports and what they would do is when they would see a vessel, especially a merchandise vessel, coming in, you know what they would do? And he thought it was a barbarous, wicked act. And he said that the Lord will never show mercy on people that do not show mercy to other people that need help. He will not show mercy on them. He said what they used to do is they used to send up flares and warning signs to ground those ships so that they would break apart so that they could go out and pirate the ships and kill all the people over, over in England. He said that's what they would do. And they would purposely lead the ships in the storms into the sandbars to break them apart so that they could steal their gold and steal their merchandise. The pirates would do that. But that's not what happens here. We see even the centurion, who is a Roman centurion, says, don't you touch a hair on their head. Don't you hurt those 276 people. So what happens here, leading up to the shipwreck, we've been talking about this for a while, I think it's fascinating, but... What, what happened before, what they had said before is, listen, the ship's being tossed to and fro. It's been, you got the Mediterranean and the Adriatic Sea. And with the ship being pulled, they finally had said, all right, we need to cast out all of the extra weight because the boat is, is, is it's down into the water because of all the extra weight. And they, they, get rid of the, they get rid of all of the tackling. They get rid of, they throw out the grain. They throw out the merchandise. It's to the point now they've got to start lightening it up. And when they lighten it up, what's the next thing they do? They pull the sail down, keep the anchors in, and they were just going to let the waters try to take the boat out to some area where maybe the winds would die down and they could gain control of it again. It does it enough. It does it enough that they start gaining a little bit of control of the ship. So what do they do? They let down, the, they, let down they put the sail back up, drop the, the, drop the four anchors, but then they hit a sardis. They hit... They hit in the middle of the hurricane, they hit like a quicksand or, or a sandbar. And I remember my grandmother and my grandfather had this tiny little shore down in Essex, way down back River Neck Road. We were kids, we would go there. And I remember when that sandbar would hit, we loved it because you could get on the beach. This little, had a teeny tiny little beach. When the sandbar was there, you could walk all the way out in the middle of the river. And that's how far it would go when those waters would assuage and they would go back. And so basically this area was very, very dangerous. So what happens to the ship is they put the sails back up, they put the anchors down. What does it do to the boat when they put the anchors down? It holds it fast at the sandbar. The front part of the ship hits it, the back part breaks apart, the waves hit it, and tears the back, ship, back of the ship up to pieces. It just tears it to shreds. And now everybody's probably yelling and screaming. So what happens? When we look at these verses, we see that there is always... There is always a way to find hope, even in the most tragic situations. And it turns out that that very boat that breaks apart... Pastor, go ahead. Uh, 
Right. What a great solution that is. Mm. And then, uh, uh, you know, of course, with Jesus uh, and others, they want to examine somebody or question them, they do that by whipping them. Mm. And they would scourge them to the point of death where a lot of them wouldn't even see the cross. They would kill them. That's what the objective was with Jesus. He was a man's man. He made it all the way through, and that's a great point. I remember back when we used to get these horrible snows. And I, I remember a couple times when I was out there plowing in the middle of the night, break down, you'd break down, people would be looking out for you. And they would come up, and they would say, we'll help you. And you'd be stuck, and they'll say, give us all you got. Happened to me twice. Anything in your wallet, give it to me. I wouldn't do it. I'd sit there and rot before I would do it, and I would dare them to do it. I would never do it. But they would come up, and they would, like, three or four guys would come up and say, hey, we'll help you out. What do you got? And I'm like, I'm not giving you nothing. I'll, I'll sit here till it melts. But that's what, that's what people are. <laughs> They, 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 they set traps and they try to come after you and they try to take everything you have. And all the way down, don't you think that when they had the shipwreck, the natives could have come up to the ship and stolen whatever they had left? They could have went after them? Hey, the Lord had them protected on every single turn. It's incredible. We see here that always, there's always a way to find hope. And it's actually the Roman centurion that's willing to save Paul. We will look at this a little bit down the road because we're going to see a little more about this centurion. But I find it fascinating. You know, in the Bible, there's always threes. There's always three. You had the Trinity. Christ was in the tomb for three days. And I look out for these numbers. I think I'm not an eschatologist. I think all that stuff can be a bunch of stuff. But uh, like that, like that Howard Campy and all that, you know, with the billboards, you know, sign your house away on October 23rd, we're all going home or whatever. He, he didn't know anything. But in threes, here we, I, I'm thinking he, right now three Roman centurions. I think there are three of them. I think all three of them are saved. What about the Roman centurion that looked up at Jesus and said, truly, this was the Son of God? That was a confession. What about the centurion that allowed Peter to stay in his house and he had his own church services? And when Peter was on top of the house and he saw the, 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 the net and all come down and the Lord showed him, he said, you're going to start eating all the food and you're going to start really reaching the Gentiles. This one here is showing that he's growing because he's saving public enemy number one to the Jews. I mean, for the Jew, you're a little afraid of Paul the Apostle because of all of the, the, the mess that he has caused. And Paul will then come back at the end of the chapter here and he'll, he'll go right to the Jews again and he'll start preaching to them again like he did in the synagogues. Well, we see it's incredible. Paul is saved. He's defended by this Roman centurion. What's incredible about this shipwreck is that the ship is nothing like the RMS Titanic. That Titanic was made of all these great big pieces of metal, and there was some idiot that said, oh, even God couldn't sink it. Well, we saw how, how he, he won that war. But the thing about it, when that ship went down, there were some dinghies, there were some little boats, there was stuff, but it was made of these great big sheets of iron. So when it went down, there was really nothing to hang on to. that would just basically suck you down. This ship was different. It broke in pieces. Those that could swim 
And the Lord perfectly had it numbered how many people could swim and how many people needed a piece of that ship to use it as a life preserver or make it into that island. Whether it was a piece of wood or a broken part of the ship, he, every single person had a way to get in off of that, that, that tempestuous, raining storm and swim into shore, and they all made it. Not one person drowned. Not one person. Lisa. Amen. That sounds like a good old proverb. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like a statement that was made years ago. I remember listening, listening. I was listening to a series on uh, on being chosen by the Lord, and 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 this one professor uh, was mentioned, and 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 the question was about Christian sinning. And he said, this man's been dead for many, many years, but he said something very profound. If the sin that you're preparing and you're, and you're basically, you're, you're planning on doing, you're, you're premeditating it, you're going to go ahead and do that sin. Is it worth going to hell for? Is it worth it? And then, of course, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the confirmation was made that, of course, if you're a Christian, you cannot be taken out of the Lord's hand. But is it, is it worth losing rewards for? And having other people be being a bad testimony to others around you, is it worth it? Lisa. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And the Christian can see that. But that's why the disciples, remember the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? So that they that have eyes cannot see and ears cannot hear. He blinded them. And that's a bad place to be. That's a really bad place to be. We don't see a whole lot of gratitude from the soldiers. Everything like Pastor Olson just said about the warnings. Paul said, you really should not go take this ship, this journey into the winter. It, we're, we're going to have, the ship is going to wreck. We're going to have a problem, but you're all going to be spared. It didn't look like the soldiers were very, very grateful for that because they come back and say, let's just kill all the prisoners. It's amazing how we see some really wonderful blessings with this centurion once again, who's Julius. Yeah, they, they, want, they want them to be destroyed, not delivered. He comes back and says, no way. And now Paul is able to minister to them once again because in chapter 28, a whole string of miracles happen and they all witness these healings, which we're going to see, which is just utterly incredible. It's just a miracle all the way down the road. We see that they go to Melita, the 276 souls, we see basically here in verse 44, and the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass, and they escaped all safe to the land. <laughs> Not one of them was lost. And so as we transfer over, the centurion is willing to save Paul. 
they all get together, they're all safe, and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Malita, or Malta. That's verse 1 in chapter 28. And look at this. There's some questions here. Yeah, these people are stiff and they're cold. They're crawling to shore, no doubt freezing, cold, and, and once in, they're very hungry. They only basically had had one meal in the last three weeks. Remember Paul? I mean, Paul sits back. They're all about to die. This, this ship's being torn to pieces, and they get this one little area of peace, and Paul says, why don't you eat the rest of the meat? Eat the rest of the food. And he sits there and he preaches to them, and they eat. And now here they are, they're on the shore, they're coming in, they're basically crawling, wondering what in the world's going to happen. And we can imagine, and we, all, we can know, that the Lord had already provided plenty of food, put it right there on the island of Melita, through the hands of these what were called barbarous people, just like he fed the 5,000 people. And then there will be healing, here they're warming up, and they are about to witness an incredible leadership from Paul the Apostle that he takes the platform and he once again will be preaching. You know, it's amazing the great variety of places and circumstances that Paul the Apostle found himself in. And here we see him now on this island, which no doubt will have never come to pass had the ship not been thrown back and forth. All 276 souls were saved. And we see here a very important application of the work of a Christian and even it's paid off all throughout scriptures for those that did not believe in the Lord, being to the Lord, hospitable to the Lord's people. This brings up an incredible application of hospitality. And the hospitality here we see, look, it says here, maybe, maybe the, King, the King James Version is spot on, but when it says barbarous people, you have to understand what is being taught here. It does not mean that there were all these people running around in grass skirts with these great big bones through their nose, singing some chant like on Gilligan's Island. Remember that? And they were worshiping Gilligan. He had his head on top of this thing. It's, it wasn't like that. It was like they were, they were like some Greek speaking, but they had different dialect. But it says they were barbarous because they were native to the land and they did not have the same dialect. So this brings up a quick question. How did they understand them? When they got there, and they couldn't, and they were, it's the bottom scripture says they were barbarous people. So that means they did not understand their language. That's what it means if you do the translation. How? We'll go back to Acts chapter 2. Pentecost. Do you think that the Lord can make an extension of Pentecost here? That somebody knew their language? Somebody knew it. I, I maintain that it was Paul. He was very well-versed in many languages. And then there's Dr. Luke there. He was nobody's dummy. He certainly was, a, he was very educated. And somehow, that doesn't show that there's one wedge driven between the barbarous people and these people that are just washed up on shore. 276 of them. Now, it actually gets more interesting than this. I mean, it doesn't, this whole thing is a progression of fascinating detail. It's in most, in fact, this, this part of Scripture is called the most detail-oriented portion of Scripture there is in the Bible, where you actually see the, the parts of the ship, and you see the shipwreck, you see the locations, you see the island, the, what three different types of ships, we're going to see a third one coming up. And here, they're shipwrecked, they're crawling onto the shore. How in the world did they not know? Or how in the world did they not face some situation where they were going to be bludgeoned to death by the natives? Think about that. 
You know, I think about the, the, the this this the, this came to mind, and I wrote down I wrote down a little bit about this. I wanted to read it to you. It wasn't the same thing that happened to an incredible missionary who said, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And you know who quoted that? Jim Elliott. On January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yalderin were speared to death on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Carreri River of Ecuador. They were trying to reach the Huarian Indians for the first time in history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they got off, they got in there, and the natives came and speared them all to death. And they were only, Jim Elliott was only 28 years old, 1956. I mean, one of his greatest statements was, you've never learned how to live until you learn how to die. He found out that day, and the Lord brought him home. There's five missionaries. Isn't that incredible? Look what the natives did. They were Indians. Lisa. Right. Right. She Right. You see the dangers that they, that could be faced. Look at what Pastor Olson said about Howard and uh, Ray Carlson's brother. I remember there was a there was there was an article that came out about five years ago. A young gentleman. He was a missionary, and there was a particular island, and I can't remember the name of that thing. Was somewhere off the coast of Africa. They were warned. The missionaries were warned never to go there. It it was brutal. And he he would he pulled he got up in a ship probably about twenty miles out got a dinghy and he said I want to go in and I want to take take Bibles and I want to witness to them he went in he went on the beach they started firing arrows at him and they killed him on the spot and buried him right in the sand some young guy and they 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 actually were able to go in there and get him but it was horrible you just don't know but you see this you see how this accentuates the protection of the Lord here. What did we read? They crawl up onto the shore. They're out on a shipwreck. They come off of the boards, off the pieces of the ship, and they go up. And how are they received? What happens? We were reading it. First three verses. Anybody? Yeah, Lisa? What did they do? They knew the first thing they needed to do was thaw them out. Get them there and let them warm them up because they were freezing cold in the rain, in the tempest. It was cold. It was winter. This was their winter season. 
And so they bring him in. And hospitality, look how incredible, incredible that. What kind of reception did they receive? Do you happen to, can you see that these distressed strangers who were shipwrecked, we read in Scripture, I love how the King James Bible puts it, that's, what, that's our Bible, no little kindness, no small kindness. They're treated with love, they're treated with respect. This is our Lord giving His perfect work and in the control of the hearts of the perfect strangers. Have you ever encountered a stranger that helped you when you were in need? How do you know it wasn't an angel? How do you know? Bible says they're there and unawares. We're to be careful. But have you ever had someone that you didn't even know if they were saved or not, and you were maybe broke down or you had a problem, you lost your wallet, like happened to me three weeks ago where two strangers found it, called me, gave it back to me at Sam's Club? Do you know? Do you, have you ever had that happen? You know, all throughout Scripture, strangers were always blessed when they helped God's people. We could give some really good examples of that. We'll do that in a minute. Hebrews, can, can, I, can I ask maybe, Greg, could you look up Hebrews 13.2? And how about, uh, Jacob, could you look up Romans 12.13? Hospi hospitality is extremely important. Hebrews 13.2. Yeah, that's, that's very important. Romans 12, 13, if you have that. And in 1 Peter 4, 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Hospitality is very important. You know, I was listening, <laughs> I, I saw that there was a message that actually, well, that, that, about this part of the Bible, I was listening to it, and the pastor said, I thought it was fascinating, he said, he knows what really bothers me today about Christians the ones who are the greatest philanthropists today are the unsaved atheists. They're the ones that give more money than Christians. And in his own church, when he asks the Christians to step up to do things, they do everything they can to get out of it. They don't want to pay. They don't want to give anything. They're always crying poor. They're always saying we don't have enough. And then when they're outside of the church, they're going to all these events and they got money to do everything else. Because it comes to the church, oh, I'm dead broke. I don't have anything. I'm sorry. Look at the bottles out there right now for Choose Hope. They're empty. We need to work on that. These people need this money, and we need, to be, we need to take this as a real warning sign to be hospitable to other people. And, you know, it's incredible. Look at the money that Bill Gates gives these organizations and some of these other ones. It's incredible. And there are people that need the help and the encouragement of Christians. And I think this is a warning to us when we're reading this, that these people were total pagans and gave everything they had to these people who came off of the shipwreck. Lisa. Yeah. Right. Amen. I mean, look what happens when you work together. You know, the pastors come, we have lunches. That fellowship has provided some real welcome times for people that have visited the church. There's that. There's all kinds of other ways we can do that. Reaching out to the missionaries. 
I've heard many pastors preach and saying they believe that the reason that our country is not China right now, where the Christians aren't being wheeled into concentration camps, is because we still have a country that supports and sends out missionaries, and there are 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knee to bail. And right now, I believe we're seeing the formation here of a church. If we read into this and see what happens here, I believe churches were started in this area because of the Apostle Paul. But we see how hospitality is so important. Leviticus 19.34 says, But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord says that. Look at some of the times in Scripture where there was hospitality given to Christians, and they were blessed. Look at Joseph. Look at how eventually Pharaoh made him second in command and took good care of him, took care of his family, and the whole area was spared because Pharaoh gave of himself. Now, of course, there's one that comes to Moses who knows not Joseph. He's totally the opposite. But then there's Moses that comes along, and he takes care of perfect stranger Israelites, many of those of which were very idol-worshipping that never stopped moaning and groaning for five minutes, and he, they were blessed because they, too, there were other Israelites that were hospitable to him and took care of him. All throughout Scripture, we see how hospitality is so important. And what happens is they show no little kindness in verse 2, for they kindled a fire, they received us, everyone, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And If you, can't, if you don't see anything else, you've got to read verse 3. That's got to strike your heart. <laughs> Somebody read verse 3. What was Paul doing? He's gathering up sticks. He just came off of a shipwreck. And by the way, at this point in his life, he was very, very ill. He was very sick. So what does he do? He sees the natives giving of themselves, kindling the fire, encouraging them, and he goes right in there with them. And there's all these sticks. He goes and he bundles them up. There's all these dead sticks. But there was a problem. One of the sticks began to move. <laughs> and when that stick began to move, it grabbed onto his arm, and the fangs must have went into him, and they're all standing back. And we've got to finish here. I didn't want to get into this yet, because we're going to have a lot of fun with this next week, I believe. But you don't get away from an asp or a viper biting you. You're not getting away with that. Pastor. No. Amen. And you know, it's funny because there are still to this day a lot of snake handlers. And they go back. I was reading a little bit about this. And they go back to these verses where the viper went off of Paul. And they do it. And they think that they have the power to do it. And these morons are getting bit to death and they're dying left and right. They have, some of them live and they're paralyzed. And they get bit. 
And then these morons have these houses filled with hundreds of snakes, and you're always reading about some snake, and it's usually the smallest one or whatever comes and bites him and kills him. You don't mess with this kind of stuff. And here the snake has got his fangs in the paw, and it shows, I wanted to leave you with this. You want to see how fickle pagan religions are? You want to, this is a very good example how fickle they are. Because if you, if you, read, if you meet another born-again Christian and they love the Lord, you will not shake the foundational principles that's in their heart about the love they have for Jesus Christ. You will not shake that. But here you see, all of a sudden, these pagan barbarous people, they see the viper, and they see it hanging off of his arm, and they're like, he's an insurrectionist, he's a murderer, he gets what he deserves, he's going to die. Now, what do you think would happen if you walked away from that for a little bit, and then you turned around and come back, and Paul's still standing there, he's alive, because they said, they believe he should have swelled up, he should have died, and all of a sudden he's still standing there. Here's how fickle they are. One second they say he deserves to die because he's pagan, and he's, I mean, he's an insurrectionist, he was a murderer, and then the next second, when the viper falls off him, all of a sudden now he's a god. <laughs> One minute he's, he's no good, he's a murderer, next minute he's a god. Lisa? Yeah. Right. Right? And that's when a lot of people say, well, who is this God? You know, Job said, I will not curse his name even though he slay me. A lot of people, they're like, God's fine as long as everything's going good. And then when it doesn't, you know what happens. Next week, we're going to learn who Publius is. We're going to learn about his father. And we're going to learn about how big of a house he had. He had a pretty big house. We'll see why. Let's finish this morning. Pastor Olson, could you close us? Thank you. Amen.